This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. This is a special episode, a joint collaboration with the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators Getting Personal section of their website. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by my colleague, Barbara Rees, who is a Curator's Professor of Mathematics Education and Lois Knowles Faculty Fellow in the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum right here at the University of Missouri. Barbara, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Barbara has had uh, quite an active and productive career in math education. She's the director of the Center for the Study of Math Curriculum, CSMC, which we'll be talking about quite a bit here today. Um, She's also a past president of the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, AMTE. And uh, in the second half of our interview here, we are going to be talking about issues specifically in teacher education. She also was the grade 3-5 writing chair for NCTM's 2000 Principles and Standards for School Mathematics. So we're going to look a little bit across um, Barbara's career, Um, but first, Barbara, I wanted to actually start by going back to your graduate school experience and um, your dissertation. I took my graduate program at a very interesting time in math education. Mm -hmm. It was right at the end of the Back to the Basics movement, right before problem solving became a major focus uh, of mathematics educators. And during that doctoral program, I was fortunate to be a graduate research assistant on two different funded projects those projects and the work in those projects really influenced my later career dramatically. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's probably true of a lot of doctoral students. They Mm -hmm. get a a rich research experience as part of their program. So the first project looked at the influence of calculators, simple four-function calculators, in elementary school mathematics. Mm. So the idea was if you give a teacher a classroom set of four-function calculators, Mm and uh, encourage that teacher to use them as they see appropriate in their elementary instruction, what happens. Mm -hmm. It was a multi-state project. I got to meet a lot of distinguished mathematics educators and researchers, and I spent a lot of time in elementary schools looking to see what teachers did with the calculators, with students. So I, I began to think about how important curriculum was at that point, as you might expect There wasn't anything about calculators. There was no help for teachers in in the late 70s in their school curriculum materials related to calculators. So they were having to make things up on their own. And and Mm -hmm. I began to see the importance of a planned curriculum Mm -hmm. to help support teacher decision-making. Okay. The second research project that I was involved in as a graduate student was looking at how people make estimates. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the growing influence of calculators, people were beginning to think about how important estimation skills are and how important it is that literate users of calculators can interpret the display of a calculator and make sense of it. Mm-hmm. So we did a study that looked at how good estimators actually, what strategies they use when they estimate. And again, this focused me back on curriculum because as part of that study, we also looked at what the school curriculum regarding estimation was, K through high school. And through a curriculum analysis, we realized that really there was very, very little attention to estimation. What mm-hmm. attention there was was on teaching children how to round numbers, mm-hmm. which it turned out expert estimators rarely use when they estimate. Hmm. So it was a pointed to a mismatch in terms of 
curriculum focus uh, with what we say is needed in the field and what literate people need. Mm -hmm. So I began to really focus on what's missing from the existing curriculum mm -hmm. and how important curriculum materials can be in terms of how teachers make decisions. That really led to my dissertation, mm -hmm. uh, which was related to the estimation study. I looked at how people calculate mentally without the aid of paper, pencil, or without the aid of a calculator. Okay. What strategies do children, what strategies do adolescents use when they mentally calculate, and when do they choose to compute mentally? So I studied, uh, had a sample of students ranging in, from the elementary grades through the middle grades, developed an instrument that would actually capture uh, their performance in mentally computing, mm -hmm. which is difficult to do because of just the nature of the, of the skills, and then identified a sample of students from that testing to actually interview and document the kind of strategies they were use, mm -hmm. using. So it was a direct follow-up to the estimation study, but it looked at the actual mental computation of finding exact answers mentally. Mm -hmm. And all of that work was at the University of Missouri? That's so, correct. Uh -huh. And who were some of the key and uh, principal investigators involved in those? So in the first study, the calculator study, Bob Rees mm -hmm. was the one of the PIs. Uh, other PIs at other institutions, Dick Shumway at Ohio State University, Terry Coburn in Michigan, um, were some of the, uh, the mm -hmm. folks that were involved in that study. In the estimation study, there were... I was fortunate there were three doctoral students at the time. We were all working on the same project, mm -hmm. again, under the leadership of Bob Rees. So it was a good cohort. Right. It was a good working relationship. And Yeah. And that's interesting, too, that as you were looking at, you know, the technology, with that, which at the time was the four-function calculators, and then uh, looking at estimation, it sounds like in your own thinking, you really were looking at the influence of curriculum. And so that we can see throughout your career that that interest in curriculum really kind of grew and expanded, and you kept looking at more um, and doing some more work. And the center of that work on curriculum is actually the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, CSMC. So I was wondering if you could tell us, kind of fast forward us to the time when CSMC was coming into existence and tell us a little bit about how that came about. Before I do that, I want to say one other mm -hmm. thing that was influential in leading me to that sure. to that path. Because we were spending a lot of time thinking about estimation and mental computation, uh, another grant was written to actually develop materials. We saw a, a mm. lack of materials in existing school curricula to help support the development of mental computation and estimation. Mm -hmm. So uh, a team at Missouri worked with Paul Trafton uh, and Judy Zawieski. Actually, Judy was the graduate research uh, student working with Paul. We actually developed a set of lessons that were meant to be supplements mm. to an existing curricula focusing on teaching of estimation and mental computation. It was the first curriculum development experience I had ever had. Mm -hmm. And again, it was supplement, uh, so teachers could choose to use or not. But they be became very popular materials when they were uh, finished, uh, published by then Dale Seymour Publications. Mm -hmm. So that really got me interested in how you might go about developing materials that would enrich the experiences of students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, I also had an experience working with a mainline publisher. Bob and I were asked to co-author a set of elementary textbooks published by Holt. This was in 19, the mid-1980s. Okay. Our task was to write the estimation and mental computation lessons within that curriculum. And we did that, but it, it was as part of a larger author team. 
and it gave me a lot of insight into how mainline materials are developed, what goes into actually developing curriculum materials, what influences what goes in a textbook. Mm -hmm. I kind of got to see the dirty side of curriculum development on a large scale. Right. So I think that really impressed upon me the need for more research-based curriculum development designs, mm -hmm. uh, and that was influential in my decision to move forward with uh, formulating the center. Okay. And so as you were formulating that, um, how did that actually come to be, and what were kind of the steps in that process? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, everything in my academic life has come about as uh, because of a particular opportunity or circumstance. As a graduate student, I was mm -hmm. involved in a couple of projects that were ongoing. And as a in my role as a faculty member, I became involved in some opportunities. Before the uh, the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, I was director of the Show Me Project, which was an NSF project that was designed around supporting implementation of the NSF-developed middle school curriculum materials. Okay. So in the early 90s, when NSF funded large-scale innovative curriculum development, at the middle school level, there were five projects that were funded. Mm -hmm. Probably the most famous one is the Connected Math Project that Glenda Lappin and her colleagues led. Uh, there were four other development uh, projects that were developed to design middle school curriculum. And at towards the end of their development, NSF saw the need to actually support use of those materials. Mm -hmm. So the Show Me Center was developed to help fund that support. Uh, and I remember sitting in my office one day and Glenda Lappin called me. Now at this time, I'm a, I think I'm probably a, an associate professor, but I may have been an assistant professor pretty early in my career, mm -hmm. and getting a, law, a call from Glenda Lappin was pretty dramatic, <laughs> but she asked if I would actually lead the proposal development to uh, lead the center f that would focus on the implementation of these middle school curricula, and she's a hard person to say no to, so I said <laughs> yes and developed that proposal in collaboration with Glenda and others, uh, and that was funded for a 10-year period, actually. Hmm. So that center was really focused on supporting the implementation of five very specific curriculum materials. And I'm, I'm a strong believer in research-based curriculum design. I knew what was going into the design of those materials, which was much different than I had seen in the design and development of commercially available mm -hmm. curriculum. So I was I'm a real supporter of the model of curriculum development that those developers had used. Uh, and I was also excited about how different they were than existing curriculum materials and how uh, they allowed opportunities for kids to engage in mathematics in ways that I didn't mm -hmm. see happening in other textbooks. Mm -hmm. Although it, towards the end of that project, it was clear that many commercial publishers were stealing ideas from those mm. designs, which was actually a good thing. Right. Uh, so we were spreading seeing, a positive influence. <laughs> right. We were seeing some examples of real student engagement. It was still, I would call, kind of isolated activities within a, a larger textbook series, but there was an influence of those NSF-developed curricula. And I became much more interested in trying to figure out how teachers come to use curricula materials, uh, how we can support true curriculum research design, how we can prepare the next generation of both curriculum developers and curriculum researchers. That really led me to uh, the establishment of the Center for the Study of Math Curriculum. Mm -hmm. It was an NSF initiative to fund 
large centers, multi-campus centers. And because of our relationship, uh, Glenda Lappin and I started talking about a, a project that would fund a center focused on curriculum. Mm-hmm. Not curriculum development, but the study of curriculum. Right. Uh, and Chris Hirsch was a natural partner, so was Sally Siskin. So we were looking for some of the best mm-hmm. curriculum people in the country, mm-hmm. many of whom were curriculum developers themselves. And we established the center. And, and I felt the real need to not only bring in curriculum developers, but also people who were uh, had experience in curriculum research and evaluation. So we established a, a group of people that we called CSMC Research Associates. These are folks who were doing the research, not necessarily the development work. Mm-hmm. And we were able to bring in people like Beth Herbal Eisenman, Janine Remillard, uh, some others, Denise Thompson, who had been really working on understanding the, uh, the use of curriculum materials. Mm-hmm. And so that Michigan State, Western Michigan, University of Chicago, and University of Missouri are the four kind of institutional partners? And then Horizon Research okay. uh, was also a partner on that project, again, to bring in uh, expertise with research, mm-hmm. research and evaluation. Mm-hmm. And then there were eight research associates. Okay, uh, And these were all early to mid-career people who uh, were making a name for themselves in terms of uh, research and curriculum. Mm -hmm. Listeners can go to the website that's maintained by the center, which is mathcurriculumcenter.org, and I'll post a link um, on the podcast page. So you mentioned 10-year funding, and it actually was extended for a year or so after that, right? So started in the early 2000s and bringing us right up to the present date. That's right. It was actually uh, funded for five years. Okay. When the original uh, CLT initiative was announced, uh, the idea was to fund centers, and then if successful and productive, they could ask for another five years. Oh, okay. We were funded, I think, in the fourth wave of funding of CLTs, and by the time we were funded, things had changed, priorities had changed at NSF, and they were no longer allowing the extended funding. We've been fortunate in that we've been able to leverage other funds and really stretch the funding. Okay. We did re- we've did received four supplements from NSF, so we've been able to stretch it to the present day. Okay. And so looking back over that history, what sticks out to you as some of the key findings that have come from the work of the center? Uh, that's a good question. One of the key products of the center are the doctoral students that we've produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been 52 students in the program across the three campuses. We're now at 38, having graduated and found their way into academic positions, continuing to do research of their own accord mm-hmm. related to the goals of the center. That in itself is, I feel, like a, a really strong product. These are folks who've had the opportunity not only to go through a a doctoral program on their institution, but also one with particular emphasis in curriculum. Mm-hmm. They've been involved in numerous center-sponsored activities, retreats, research conferences, uh, projects that have allowed them to, to understand the importance of curriculum-related research and then engage in it at a doctoral level. So that's one of our proudest accomplishments. Mm-hmm. We've also been able to do certain projects and sponsor certain gatherings that I think have influenced the field. For example, in 2006, we did an analysis of state standards. Uh, This was well before the Common Core standards, but there was a lot of discussion in the field about where we were headed following uh, NCLB, Mm -hmm. which prompted every state to develop detailed content standards and we were interested. There was there was the common assumption that these standards were not all alike, 
and that they might those differences might be contributing to the situation of textbooks being a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, textbook authors, publishers design materials for a national audience, and yet they were having to respond to individual state standards and putting together these materials. Yeah. So that was the common assumption, but no one to date had ever really looked at and compared state standards. Several institutions have evaluated state standards. For example, the Fordham Foundation regularly graded state standards, Mm. but didn't look at the differences across them. So we undertook a pretty large-scale project to actually document uh, similarities and differences in both the organization of state standards, but more specifically in the content. Mm -hmm. The Missouri crew took on the strand of uh, number and operations, uh, and we did a detailed analysis of how states differed in terms of when they expected students to know certain things, have computational fluency of particular types. And that the findings of that study were pretty dramatic. We documented huge differences in terms of when certain topics were introduced, over what period of time they were studied, and when fluency was expected. And we published that report in several different venues and presented it. And I think it was most influential to the folks at state agencies and at national institutes that were examined, were beginning to think about whether we would be better off with a common set of standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after publishing that, uh, we convened a national conference, invited representatives of every state agency mm-hmm. and representatives of professional organizations, and looked at where we are with standards, where mm-hmm. we were at kind of a status report. At that time, the ASA had just come out with their new document about standards for statistics education. And NCTM had pro- was in the process of producing focal points. Okay. So there were things happening nationally, and we felt like it was time to actually have a conversation about the status of standards development and what needed to happen. Jer Comfrey gave the keynote session at that particular conference, and it was very dramatic. Uh, She laid out really very carefully a need for consensus on curriculum standards and made an argument of why that would benefit the country and the field. And, you know, I like to think that influenced some decisions that came afterwards. I don't know that that's true, and and the process of developing the Common Core isn't exactly like I would have designed it or Jer called for it, but I think it, we had some influence in terms of creating, a, uh, adding to the national conversation about the need for examining how we were developing standards. Right, and actually doing some analysis and bringing some data to the conversation rather than just exactly. spouting opinions. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that was one contribution we made to the literature and the national conversation CSMC has never had funding to actually do specific research projects. We Our funding is to support doctoral student development, mm-hmm. which includes trying to engage them in some small-scale activities, convenings, and just the power of having a pretty substantial group of individuals who've, who care a lot and have thought right. about curriculum and are willing to speak out in terms of you know what's needed. I think mm-hmm. that that's a major contribution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm talking with Barbara Rees about um, the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, and I'm also curious, and I think the listeners are curious, too, um, looking ahead to the future. 
So as the center is kind of wrapping up its sort of official funding or this phase of its funding, and also people are entering the field with interest in researching mathematics curriculum, what would you identify as some of the areas that need further work in the future or some areas that maybe the center has identified as um, just needing further analysis or needing to gain further insight into? Well, I think I'd like to think that the center helped raise the the possibility that work in curriculum can be a an academic career. Curriculum development is a scholarly endeavor if it's done correctly, and I'd like to think that that message has been passed along to the next generation, that you can get involved in scholarly development of curriculum and it can count on things that matter in terms of promotion and tenure. We, I think we've also raised awareness of the importance of curriculum as a school improvement strategy. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things that need to be done to help you know more students succeed, not the least of which is improving teaching. But I believe that curriculum is a, a very important element of uh, how you go about teaching. So I, I like to think that there will be continued work and effort and status associated with doing curriculum work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've tried very hard in the center to develop and leave uh, for the field a set of documents that will help the next generation understand where curriculum has come from. As you know, you're teaching our own curriculum seminar this this Mm -hmm. semester for doctoral students. Mm -hmm. We have a long history in the United States of curriculum reform, and sometimes it goes through cycles. But unless the next generation of scholars in the field understand and can learn from the lessons of of the past, then I think we're just kind of reinventing mm-hmm. the problems again. Uh, we have developed in the center a set of resources that give future generations access to some of that history, mm-hmm. and I think that's an important legacy. Uh, I think, you know, where we're setting right now, it's it's a very important time and a very rich time to be working in this field. With the implementation of the Common Core, there are lots of questions about how teachers will will change, will adapt to the new Common Core, what changes are needed, what resources are needed to make this work, uh, whether it's the right set of standards, are there progressions built into the standards that need uh, reconsideration. Uh, so there's a lot of questions about just the Common Core and its implementation, mm-hmm. and that's coming in at the same time that we have this whole new delivery system for uh, curriculum on the horizon. Uh, Schools are moving very rapidly, I think much more rapidly than uh, teachers and parents and maybe scholars are really thinking about it into the digital use use of digital curriculum. Mm -hmm. So this new format of curriculum materials, what affordances does that give us? And, you know, what are the benefits? What are the costs? In what ways will it increase the likelihood of engagement of students with mathematics, with important mathematics contexts. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know a lot, really, about how teachers currently use print textbooks. Uh, there's a little research in that area. We know much more about how teachers use textbooks than we do how students use textbooks. Uh, right. And as it moves from a print textbook to a digital textbook, that raises a lot of questions about what students will gain from that kind of access. So it's a really interesting time you know, both historically and just looking at the present and to the future, we have a lot of opportunities to to study and learn and to provide better resources for students and teachers. Mm -hmm. 
I'm speaking with Barbara Rees, curator's professor from right here at the University of Missouri. We've been talking about the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, um, but Barbara, another area that you've been quite involved over your career in is uh, teacher education. As I mentioned, you're past president of the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. So I wanted to ask a few questions about that as well. Digging into your own thinking about teacher education, are there certain programs of research or certain researchers' work um, that has really informed the way that you've thought about or approached math teacher education? Well, I think the work by Deborah Ball and her colleagues, which really have kind of redefined the knowledge of what's important in terms of uh, the knowledge needed by teachers, has been very influential. It's, I, In many ways, it's substantiated things that I've known as a practicing teacher educator. I've not done research in the area of teacher education. I've been a teacher educator mm-hmm. responsible for both undergraduate and graduate teacher education all my career. So I'm a practicing teacher educator and understanding that it's not just good enough to know math, that you have to know math in a certain way mm-hmm. in order to teach well. That just makes so much common sense. Uh, and it, it took her group to basically articulate that for the field. Mm-hmm. And that that has been really uh, substantial in terms of my own thinking. As a practicing teacher educator, I learn from others who are studying it, but I also try to apply my own area of expertise. So for example, curriculum. I've, I've thought for a long time that we undervalue the study of curriculum in our undergraduate teacher preparation programs. Our, our students, my undergraduates, know very little about standards, about how they come about, about progressions within standards, about how standards and assessments align, what the role of textbooks should be. So what I've been pressing on in my own work is to try to define more clearly what role curriculum plays in the preparation of teachers, almost as an object of instruction. So what is it that undergraduate or pre-service teachers need to know about curriculum? How can I help them understand tools, curriculum tools that that they will be handed when they get a teaching assignment and decisions that they need to make about those curriculum tools? Uh, That's not only true of undergraduates, I think, in-service teachers. Uh, for a while, we were actually using curriculum as a professional development tool. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the big contributions of the NSF-developed curriculum. You could actually organize professional development around the tools that teachers were using on a day-to-day basis. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that that's, that's always going to be important, regardless of the curriculum materials that a district particularly has. So I think the work of Deborah Ball and her group has been influential in my work. And the other piece that I'd like to think that I can still contribute to the field is perhaps defining a bit more carefully what it is about curriculum that should be infused in our own uh, undergraduate programs. I'm hoping to play with that idea a little bit as I prepare for the Judith Jacobs lecture Mm -hmm. coming up uh, at the AMTE conference. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. And again... We talked about kind of future needs or future areas, and there's you, you mentioned some very compelling areas um, right now and into the future related to curriculum, but also how do you see teacher education fitting into the future needs of math research or how it maybe fits into Common Core and the digital transition? Uh, you know, I think we're at a really important crossroads in teacher education right now. A lot of pressure, external pressures to 
improve the preparation of teachers and a lot of negative vibes about current models of teacher preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the one hand, I don't, I don't think it's all that helpful just to be defensive about it. I think we have to recognize where the limitations of undergraduate teacher preparation are and then propose models that might address those limitations. In math education, I think we're in a different place than other fields. There's, given the shortage of math teachers, I think we need to do everything we can to invite people into the field. So if they decide as an undergraduate they want to be a, a teacher, then we need to get them into the field and start preparing them as undergraduates. A lot of people come to the field of teaching as graduate students, and we have to have ways of allowing them access at that stage mm-hmm. or career changers. So. As teacher, edu- as mathematics teacher educators, we have to think on all different, lots of different fronts, in order to provide avenues for the preparation and the development of teachers. But I think nationally, we have to have a greater voice in some of this ongoing debate about teacher preparation: who should do it, uh, what the role of colleges of education are versus content departments. Uh, We certainly need to have a better collaboration between mathematics educators and mathematicians in the actual preparation of teachers. That's been a frustration of my all through my career that I haven't made more progress in my own campus in that regard. But it's you know something you just can't give up on. You still see models around the country where there is close collaboration, and you got to find ways to make that work. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to my own class this week. There's this continuing conversation that I have with my undergraduates, uh, pre-service math teachers, and they're in their mind, they're thinking about the balance between the, their mathematics preparation and then their mathematics education preparation. They're basically voicing a preference to take less of the advanced math classes and have more in the College of Ed, where more that's mm-hmm. specific to the work of teaching, maybe more that's related to kind of Deborah Ball's framing mm-hmm. of the mathematical knowledge mm-hmm. for teaching. I usually actually take the side of giving a few arguments for those advanced math courses, but I also probably need to think about that in terms of the current climate where there are pressures from outside saying that maybe all they need is those math courses and they don't need anything from a college of ed. That argument is really going at a lot of levels between me and my students, between us sort of who are both teacher educators, and then between external forces, policymakers, and colleges of ed. And then there's the tension of... The pedagogy, it's not always clear to me that undergraduates know enough to learn what they need to know. I mean, they don't, having a, you know, a, a, a field experience where they're in the classroom one or two times a week isn't sufficient for, for them to really understand the challenges of classroom practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much that I'd like to do with my undergraduates that they're just not ready for. Yeah, it'll be more valuable if they could do it once they're in in right. service rather so I, than... I think we need to do a lot better job with induction programs, mm-hmm. and I know it's difficult, the logistics are difficult, but the, you know a more ideal teacher preparation program would be initial some initial preparation as an undergraduate in, in pedagogy, and then a continual conversation about that as they advance into their first and second year. Uh, connecting and you know making it a more seamless transition mm-hmm. and you know an ongoing discussion. I don't know if we'll be able to get to that in our current structural models, but but maybe there are ways to change the structure so that that can happen. Mm-hmm. 
My guest is Barbara Rees from the University of Missouri, and thank you so much for being here. Before I let you off the hook, I have one more question that I ask all of my guests, and this is this is meant to be a little bit more fun than some of the mm-hmm. the intense kind of issues that we were just talking about. Imagine if you if you could kind of go back in time when you were starting out on this career in mathematics education, and if your life had gone a different direction to a completely different career, what could you have seen yourself doing? Well, I mean, I am an accidental mathematics educator. Uh-huh. Uh, I never set out to be a mathematics educator or a mathematics teacher educator. I'm even a, an accidental mathematics teacher. I just happened <laughs> to have a very good high school math teacher mm-hmm. who I thought I could I could be like. And so that led me into being a math teacher, and my graduate program, my master's program, led me into being something uh, more of a mathematics teacher, educator, and researcher. So I've been, it's been kind of accidental kind of opportunities that have led me along this path. But I've always thought if I, if I was more purposeful back then, mm-hmm. or somewhere along the line, I decided to change careers, what I'd be really good at is being an executive assistant. Hmm. I never wanted to be the top person, the mm-hmm. director of anything. I wanted to be the person who assisted the director. I like to be organized. I like to mm-hmm. be just behind the scenes to mm-hmm. help the person who's at the head do their best job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a good organizer. Uh, I'm a good brainstormer. I can uh, keep people organized, but I don't really like to be the front person. Hmm. So I think if I had it to do all over, I'd, just, I'd be an executive assistant to someone. Right, and I think those skills actually have come into play because I think one of the things uh, that you've really contributed to the field, and I've heard actually a lot of different people comment um, about this, the different conferences that you've brought together or you have helped people make connections. Right. Um, you're involved in the STAR program uh, for the early mm-hmm. career mathematics mm-hmm. um, faculty members and just throughout the years a lot of these different conferences. So I think that's almost kind of you sort of trying to follow that little sidestep of let me organize this, let me bring people together, and then let me kind of watch the sparks fly and watch things happen. Barbara, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your career and talk about current issues in math education. Thanks to you, Sam.